The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. So good to be together with you again here on the show. Thanks very much for being part of it. And as always, thank you to those of you who so very effectively spread the word. Now, those of you who've listened regularly over the last couple of, well, what's it, about two years now, um, you've heard me on a number of occasions um, uh, kind of semi-apologize for quoting from the Bible. And I usually uh, say something like, well, <coughs> for those of you um, who, uh, for whom the Bible is not, <coughs> pardon me, something significant in your lives, uh, for those of you for whom the Bible is, is not anything of, of a guide to reality, <coughs> then at the very least, uh, you can be aware that it's been a monumental work that has had a colossal impact on Western civilization in which you are privileged to live. And so uh, I hope you don't mind me quoting. Now, for, for those people who are ardent secularists, and, and I'm very happy that uh, there are many such people who listen to the show regularly. Uh, obviously, they are, they are thoughtful people. <coughs> and share uh, with me quite often their thoughts. But the reality is that they will hardly uh, find that apology meaningful. In other words, <laughs> I don't know what's the matter with me, sorry. Um, they will not feel that somehow uh, by my issuing that little caveat, my quotations from the Bible will now suddenly assume great meaning. And then for the other folks uh, who, like me, do regard the Bible as significant, well, you don't need that apology. So I think perhaps with, um, with due respect to everybody, maybe I'm just going to dispense with that. And whenever I have to quote from the Bible, uh, maybe it's just best that I just go ahead and do that, okay? I think so. And I should tell you that uh, one of the interesting facets of uh, the Bible in ancient Jewish wisdom is that uh, we Jews actually have instituted in the annual calendar a day of mourning for what? The very first time the Bible was translated out of Hebrew. Why is that? Well, because <laughs> until that point, until that point, uh, the the Bible necessitated a serious investment. So, in other words, you didn't have every uh, mental midget with um, with uh, mental spasms masquerading as thoughts, giving their opinion on it, because you have to have already made something of a scholarly investment just in order to read it. Whereas when it was translated, all of a sudden, a world full of know-nothings uh, whose, <laughs> whose monumental ignorance of the Bible is exceeded only by their arrogance. People who have no idea whether Leviticus is a book or an aftershave lotion for cool men what well, these people now issue pronouncements 
And you'll often hear them saying, oh, who can take seriously a book that says a man can sell his daughter as a slave? And who can take a book seriously that says uh, people get stoned for adultery? Or who can take seriously a book? Okay. So I pay no attention to that. It's, it's like the babbling of fools. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's that they don't know anything about it. And they are taking a book that was intended as a technical text and, they, and transforming it into a fairy tale. So the, here's the equivalent. And by the way, Isaac Newton um, in the early 18th century wrote many of his scientific texts in Latin. Much, in fact, uh, his mathematics book is called Principi Principia Mathematica in Latin. Why? And he said it's in order to make it inaccessible to ignoramuses and fools. And that's why uh, there is a, uh, a sense of sadness about the day the Bible was translated, just because it, it made possible all of this foolishness. And you'll still, you'll hear it to, to this very day on, on silly TV shows where people um, who, uh, whose hostility to the Bible is considerably greater than their knowledge of it uh, will have much to say about it, you know. Well, okay, fine. This is a lot like uh, taking, somebody takes Newton's first law of motion. Newton's first law of motion says that uh, any object will remain moving as it is or stationary as it is unless it's acted upon by some kind of external force. And uh, you, you might hear somebody saying, well, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, I can throw a ball and it doesn't keep moving. It, it eventually stops. So that's nonsense. What did Newton know? Or, or um, uh, you know, I can uh, uh, be in my car and when traveling down the highway, but if uh, eventually if I run out of gas, it doesn't stay moving. It slows to a stop. Okay, all of that is part of Newton's law of motion, unless acted upon by external forces like the brakes or air friction, air resistance, or uh, rolling resistance, whatever it is, these things all are covered. So something that uh, was uh, enunciated in the early 18th century by Sir Isaac Newton is valid to this very day. It's useful, it's applicable, it helps us understand how the world really works. That's right. And this is um, exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, for those people for whom the Bible is just a sequence of translated uh, fairy stories and primitive, archaic, and obsolete rules, fine. So, um, you're mistaken. You, you have an utter misunderstanding. Uh, you trivialize something that is profound and thereby display your ignorance. But for people who are open-minded and thoughtful and interested in learning, uh, it's, it's something entirely different. So here we go from, from me saying I wasn't going to make an apology for quoting from the Bible to me giving a huge explanation and apology for why I'm quoting. Well, not an apology anyway, but uh, let me dive right into it, okay? Um, so Isaac, uh, Isaac is the firstborn Jew, of course, son of Abraham. He first appears in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 21. Now, here's what's interesting. For the longest time, we simply hear nothing about him. And then finally, he's in his 30s. And by the way, we know that because it's easy to do a little Genesis arithmetic and put together names and dates from different times. And we discover that um, when 
the seminal event that shapes all of Judaism for, for eternity uh, takes place when Abraham binds Isaac upon the altar. Isaac's actually in his 30s at that point. And even then, uh, his role is rather passive. I mean, you literally only hear that his question to Abraham is, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and that's it, you know? And, and literally, you hear not, this guy seems to do absolutely nothing at all. And obviously, there is the biblical intention here that the biblical student should notice that since Isaac is born, he seems the most passive guy imaginable. Um, chapter 20, uh, chapter 22, uh, Sarah's, um, after, after that chapter, uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 22, Sarah passes away <clears throat> and she is buried. And, um, uh, there's actually a bigger obligation on a person to bury a parent than upon a man to bury his wife. So in other words, parental obligation transcends spousal obligation and yet we hear about abraham burying sarah but nothing at all about isaac's participation or involvement so once again isaac's mia missing in action and then comes the story about uh, selecting a wife for isaac once again the man of the moment is not seen Abraham arranges everything with his chief of staff, a guy called Eliezer, who subsequently finds Rebecca far away and brings her back. Um, we then again encounter Isaac, not doing much. Um, he's in the field, and guess what? He raises his eyes, and he sees Rebecca, and at that point, he begins to spring into action. At chapter 24, verse 67, 2467, for those of you who want to take a look, Isaac took Rebekah into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He married her, she became his wife, and he loved her. <clears throat> and from this point, Isaac now becomes active, right? <clears throat> he buries his father, Abraham, when Abraham dies. He prays for his wife. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. He relocates his family to Gerar. He digs wells. He initiates a special blessing to his sons 57 years before his death. By the way, another little bit of Genesis arithmetic. And he sends Jacob away to Rebekah's family, and he lives until the age of 180, at which point his two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, bury him. That's the question we have to ask ourselves is what suddenly caused Isaac to become so active, um, sort of cementing his place as the second of the three forefathers of Israel? Well, the answer is that, as you can see quite clearly, he goes from a man of no activity at all, uh, extraordinarily passive, into a guy who really is moving the world around him and shaping his own reality by what? The process of becoming a husband and a father. That's what changed him. So yes, Abraham did do the job of finding a wife for him, but it was Isaac who embraced Rebekah, brought her into the tent of his late mother Sarah, loved her and fathered two sons with her. And so uh, it's, it's really important to see that something changed here at the point of marriage. Have you ever seen how we guys, and, and this may seem strange to, to you women, although you might recognize it, have you ever noticed how we seem allergic to things that are broken? Like we have to do something about it, right? 
I mean, I um, I, I, I literally... I love my toolbox. I mean, I, I know that sounds ridiculous, you know, loving an inanimate object, but I really, really, I mean, my toolbox means something to me. And yes, it bothers me when something is broken. And I know I'm not alone. Let me explain what that is as soon as we get back. Meanwhile, I remind you, our website is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. If you haven't been there before, go there now. You'll also see that uh, in um, honor of the topic of today's podcast, which is uh, male-female relationships and marriage, uh, a terrific audio CD program, which you can get instantly by download, uh, or by having it mailed to you, is called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Madam, I'm Adam, get it, it's a palindrome. You can read it either way. Um, I also joke that it's what uh, Adam said to Eve when he first encountered her. The Lord said, um, Adam, look what I brought you. And Adam looks up and says, Madam, I'm Adam, uh, suggesting the uh, two-way nature of marriage you know, from both sides. Both sides are givers, both sides receive, and so on and so forth. At any rate, the program is called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, and you'll find it at rabbidaniellappin.com on a special price for listeners of this show for the next three days, I believe. And uh, you can get hold of it there. You can also download it and get it right away. I'll be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really does work. And, uh, of course, few things are more central to how the world really works than male-female relationships. Um, we call the traditional way of dealing with that for humanity, we call that marriage. But it's by no means universally accepted, neither has it always been around, and neither does everybody believe that it is the best solution. But uh, I had just, in the end of the previous segment, I just asked about whether you had noticed that we men are allergic to broken things. Uh, by and large, we like to get things fixed. Uh, even, even when a guy gets a new car, or a car that's new for him, he usually starts doing things to it. At the very least, he buys new valve stem caps for his tires, or he installs a police radar detector. Um, not legal in some places, by the way, so uh, follow the law on that. You do not want to have a police radar detector in places that it's not allowed, do you? So, um, so 
that business of solving problems, it's crucial to men. And I've spoken in the past about one of the areas in which men and women uh, are ill-matched, <laughs> where you'd really think to yourself, you know, that if, if you were a social anthropologist, you would have looked from another planet. You'd look at men, you'd look at women, and you'd say, look, the only way to have peace is to make sure these two species do not interact. We have to keep them separate. We'll make one continent for males. We'll make another continent for females. Now, this doesn't apply to animals because female and male giraffes get along just fine. But men and women, come on. And when there's a problem, a woman would much rather talk about it. A man would much rather fix it. And that's, you know, not true in a million out of a million cases, but it's a majority true generalization. And so I would say then that uh, for a man to be truly happy and fulfilled at work, he needs to be recognized for solving problems. That's what he's got to be doing, and that makes him happy. Uh, the, um, the armed service, actually all the uniformed services attract men. Why? Because they're action-oriented, right? If there's a fire, they don't hold a support session for all the fire uh, men to get together and talk about how scary the fire is and what can be done to stop future fires? No! Right? They, they pour into the burning building and they do whatever they can to solve the problem, put out the fire. And that's true for, for many of these activities and occupations that attract men. And um, uh, that, that action orientation, what do we do when we meet one another? Right? We shake hands, we fist bump, we slap one another's shoulders, we hug boisterously. Women connect just as powerfully, but a delicate kiss precedes the important non-physical animated conversation. For women, engagement means talking. For men, engagement usually means action. And um, if this still baffles you in any way whatsoever, you know, just go to the playground and watch how much f more physically little boys play with their peers than little girls with theirs. Or, or you'll even see how in marriage, uh, women do seek more conversation while men seek more physical interaction. Each is trying to engage with his spouse, right? The man is trying to get closer to his wife. The wife is trying to get closer to her husband. It's just that each gender goes about it a little bit differently. Here's the interesting thing. Young men who are perhaps sometimes insufficiently active in their business and professional lives very often undergo dramatic change when they get married. The way that the good Lord created men is that it is impossible for a man to enjoy ultimate connection with his wife without action on the part of the male. This is a reality that can spread benefit to every part of their marital life, particularly financial. And that's what I was talking about with Isaac a little bit earlier, right? Where I was explaining that it was marriage that drove Isaac into action. You hear nothing of this important firstborn Jew of history until he gets married, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's like the ever-ready bunny. He's, he's on top of everything. Um, what is it? What causes that activity? Certainly, it was getting married and then having a baby. And that's why I often say that um, 
marriage produces more change and again this is just an opinion I mean, this is it's certainly arguable but it, to my way of thinking particularly in the context of this conversation uh, marriage changes men more than it does women uh, having a baby having a child has an enormous impact on men as well now let's talk about that reproduction for just a moment and um, I want to say this um, as delicately as I can while at the same time I want to make sure that I am not in any way um, neglecting to lay out the truth for you as clearly as I possibly can so um, you'll you'll pardon me if it's a little bit um, more graphic than I usually like being on the show but it's important to understand because do you remember me saying and again I'm, I'm in, in asking that question I'm obviously addressing myself to people who've been with me on the show for a long time or people who've listened to my audio programs or read some of my books but uh, I've spoken in the past about how the good Lord created our bodies uh, in such a way so as they reflect inner spiritual reality and uh, b by examining the way certain things are built into our bodies you can draw certain legitimate conclusions about our spiritual realities for instance um, if I were the engineer in charge of designing the human being where would I put the balance mechanism and the answer is, I certainly wouldn't put it in the ears, that's for sure. Because the head moves around so much that every time you tilt your head or nod your head, the message being sent to your brain is, hey, he's falling over, right? If you tilt your head to the side, the message is you're falling over. However, fortunately, your brain has the equivalent of about 2 million lines of software code that undo that and say, no, no, relax. Uh, look at the input from the neck you'll see he's just bending his head he's not his center of gravity is not moving he's not about to fall over cancel the alarm if i was in charge guess where i'd put the balance mechanisms shoulders or hips probably hips still uh, close enough to the spinal column uh, enough spatial separation for accurate resolution and uh, no false and uh, false uh, negatives you don't get messages saying he's falling over because if your hips signal that you're falling over yes you are and so that's where i'd put it why does it go in the ears as you've heard me explain in the past at greater length than i'm going to do now um, is because it's to teach us that balanced information comes via the ears and there's, there's something about the eyes which teaches the opposite, and I've covered all of that elsewhere. But um, bottom line is, there are certain realities. Take a look at uh, genitals. Uh, on a male, you've got jutting visible masculinity, very clearly projected. Uh, with a woman, it's hidden. There's nothing to see. Spiritual reality, well, it's obvious, right? The, the sexual visible aggressiveness of the male and uh, the, the more demure, modest, hidden sexuality of the female. Uh, it's right, perfectly clear. Well, here's another one, and um, here's where I, I'm going to do my best to be both delicate and accurate at the same time, which could just possibly be a feat that lies beyond me, but I'll do my best. Um, all right. Um, Virtually all males, 
uh, all mammal males, pardon me, all mammal males, uh, including uh, gorillas and baboons and whales, uh, are equipped with a rigid bone called a baculum. And this is absolutely fascinating because this thing facilitates the mating process. Um, the body moves it up into the male organ to provide the rigidity necessary for uh, implanting the seed in the female. I'm being clear. Very interestingly enough, human males have no such thing. Think of it as a material aid, a physical aid. Right? Imagine, I mean, if there was such a thing as a baculum, uh, Pfizer would be out of business. They'd be bankrupt because nobody would buy Viagra. All that would happen is that whenever uh, uh, physical intimacy was about to happen, the body would slide this baculum up into the male organ and it would provide the necessary rigidity, etc., etc., and away they go. Everything's fine. But we don't have such a thing. Human mating depends entirely upon a spiritual desire the man feels for his wife. So clearly, as far as animals are concerned, mating is entirely physical it's to ensure reproduction, and that is best achieved by uh, a physical solution, namely a rigid bone, the baculum, which makes it all work. But apparently God wanted human male-female connections to be so much more than biological. Because if, re if reproduction was the only goal, this rigid bone coming into play is immensely useful. But if God's main goal is for intercourse to provide authentic connection on the deepest levels between a man and a woman, then a baculum would detract from the relationship, turning it into something merely physical. But without that, there actually needs to be something real. And, um, and it is possible to produce, um, let's call it uh, erectile dysfunction. It is possible to produce that in a male with no physical problem whatsoever. Yes, it can be produced by physical problems as well. However, it can be financial problems. It can be unhappiness between husband and wife. There are so many spiritual reasons because the divine blueprint of mankind was that that male-female connection has to be at its root spiritual. That connection is spiritual, and that's the whole idea, which I think uh, sets us up in order to move forward into the next section of this discussion, uh, coming right up as soon as we're back from the break. The, um, the website, of course, as you know, is rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, there you will find a uh, program which is truly fascinating for couples to listen to together. Uh, you know, if, if you and your girlfriend, you and your fiancé, you and your wife, or your wife and your... Sometimes it's better if I speak to women about this, uh, but the man in your life and you, you're not communicating so much, here is a fantastic solution. If you're going on a car trip or if you have to set aside time one evening, uh, you listen to this together and stop the program, uh, you know, every 15 minutes or so and just 
talk about what I've just revealed. It's called the. Um, it's called Madam, I'm Adam, decoding marriage secrets from Eden. It's on a special reduced price right now for the next few days on my website, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Marriage secrets from Eden. Right, Madam, I'm Adam. Audio program with a study guide. But uh, the key thing is, it's a fabulous thing for men and women to listen to together, particularly if they are in the process of either building a connection or repairing and restoring a connection. A lot of people have used this program very successfully for that as well. So um, head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. I'll be back with you in just a moment. Listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com/slash radio. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of it. And thank you for giving me the incentive each week to prepare. Um, insights and principles, timeless truths from ancient Jewish wisdom uh, to share together with you here on the show. Uh, So there we are, we're talking about uh, male-female relationships, but before we do that, I want to just give you a few examples of how wrong even super smart people can be. And obviously the point I'm trying to make is that yes, you and yes, me and all kinds of people can be so sure that we've got something down, that we really understand it, that our insights provide us with the correct uh, blueprint to how the thing is working. But we may not be then. I'm always fascinated, and I, I constantly remind myself of instances where people who I admire, and by the way, when I say I admire, I should point out there's no word in the Lord's language, Hebrew, for the word hero, because we're not supposed to uh, model our lives entirely on any one person. I would never say so-and-so is my hero, um, because that would suggest that uh, we have the identical fingerprints and the same soul. It's not possible. I have to be me, he was him, and so I admire certain aspects of him, but not everything. And so that it's always like that. So if I'm talking about successful business professionals, I'm speaking about admiring the businesses that uh, that they have built or the success they've achieved, anyway, by way of background. So do you remember Blockbuster Video? I remember Blockbuster Video, and I also remember when Jim Keyes uh, was asked about um, streaming video. And what he said then, this is only in 2008, by the way, so it's not that long ago, nine years ago, he said, uh, Netflix is not even on the radar screen in terms of competition to us. <laughs> um, two years later, Blockbuster went bankrupt in, two, in 2010, I think it was. Uh, Steve Ballmer ran Microsoft for a number of years. Now, some people will say he ran it into the ground, but, you know, there are people who admire him, there are people who don't. But bottom line is he, he was an effective chief executive officer of Microsoft. He really was. And um, they came to him and showed him the first iPhone that Apple came out with. And, and he laughed and he said, $500? That's ridiculous. That's the most expensive phone in the world. And it will never appeal to business customers because it doesn't have a keyboard. 
and obviously he was thinking of the the blackberry as the alternative but anyway look what do you i'm not blaming these people i'm certainly not mocking them because we're human beings we don't know the future and when you are at the top of your game running a company obviously you think your world view is correct obviously um, one of the best ones, by the way, goes back to 1943. There was a very effective guy called Thomas Watson who built up IBM, right? In those days was international business machines, and, uh, you know, some people heard of it, some people didn't. But he built up the IBM we know, and here's what he said in 1943. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers, in 1943 okay i mean um look uh it's 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 pretty amazing um there was a you remember digital equipment there was a very fine computer i don't know if any of you will remember this I, I was an early adapter and so i had a computer before the ibm model came out before uh dos disk operating system came out for you know for for the, uh, the that 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 microsoft design i had a digital equipment rainbow computer i wonder if any of you remember the rainbow it was a great little computer for its day anyway ken olsen was the head of the company that built the rainbow and in 1977 uh, he said there's absolutely no reason why anybody should want a computer in their home that was 77. Um, Apple had just introduced their first model of the personal computer, and he was, he was mocking it. He was laughing at it. Um, all right, one more of Steve Ballmer, who I've studied. Uh, Steve Ballmer at Microsoft um, said, Google's not a real company. It's just a house of cards. <laughs> right. uh, today, um, Google is a hundred billion dollars bigger than Microsoft. It's crazy. I mean, you wouldn't have believed these things back then, you know? It's, it's pretty, I've told you before also, uh, when Alexander Graham Bell came up with the telephone, he presented it to William Orton, who was the president of Western Union, and they sort of owned the telegraph business back then. And, um, and so he shows it to Alexander. He, Alexander Graham Bell didn't have the money to develop it. He shows it to William Orton. William Orton throws him out of the office laughingly and says, um, this is nothing but an electrical toy. Western Union would have no reason to use this. And so Alexander Graham Bell went and got financing from his father-in-law and built up the Alexander Graham Bell phone company. Uh, which very quickly overtook Western Union in size. And anyway, again and again and again, right? We get these stories. They happen constantly. Now, that's not all. There's another aspect to it as well. Uh, then there have been widely accepted theories that have held control of the world of science for, for decades and sometimes even longer than that. Um, there was, for those of you who are interested, there was the caloric theory of heat and the phlogiston theory of heat. Completely wrong! But each of those, for the longest time, was accepted as, as correct. Any university student who did not answer according to caloric or phlogiston theory was failed, and it was all wrong. Or more recently, how about the uh, idea of what the atom is? 
John Dalton had a model of the atom. And again, without going into the details of what's wrong with it, it was totally wrong. Or how about the Rutherford model of the atom, which in itself displaced what they called the, um, the, the, the blueberry muffin model of the atom, where the electrons were, uh, were, were little blueberries inside the, 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 the muffin of the, of the atom. Uh, but then much more recently, Neil Bohr came up with something that was somewhat closer. And then after that, the electron cloud and more recently, clarification. Uh, through quantum mechanics, little by little, we're, we're getting closer and closer in those areas. But the point is that throughout history, including through the 20th century and into the 21st century, there have been theories of science that are simply not correct. And for the longest time, they were held to be true. Why do I speak of this? Because the world now believes, when I say the world, I mean the world of, of American culture, science, academia, um, media, entertainment, everybody believes that modernity came along in 1962 or somewhere earlier that period and uh, liberated mankind, liberated Americans from primitive tribalistic, patriarchal notions of sex. Can you believe that they thought that sex was something that a man and a woman should share only after they've made a lifetime commitment to each other? That's how primitive they were uh, puritanical and they were repressed. And really, for the last 60 years, that's really been how people have believed. And the literature shows that the entertainment reflects it i you know i come back to uh, the uh, television series that ran for nine seasons friends you remember ross and rachel and monica and uh, chandler and joey and phoebe um, okay that series was interesting now i don't believe that in and of itself, it changed the morale of a generation. I don't think that's the case. But I do think that it reflected exactly what I'm talking about, which is that this was a period starting in the early 60s and reaching its fulfillment with the so-called sexual revolution of the 70s and 80s. And you were a hopeless, um, primitive, anachronistic, fuddy-duddy, if you didn't buy into the sexual revolution. And all of a sudden, you had clashes, I think, most colorfully represented by uh, parents whose children went off to college. These were um, parents who, uh, who had, if you like, the greatest generation. Fought World War II, got through that period, gave their parents everything they didn't have, but neglected to give their children, not parents, they, they neglected to give their children some of the things they did have. And uh, the, the plaintive question that get, uh, got asked to newspaper uh, agony columnists all the time was, uh, my son or my daughter's coming home for winter vacation from college with his or her boyfriend or girlfriend, and uh, I've been notified that they intend sharing a room. Do I have to allow that? My husband and I are very uncomfortable with this. Yes, in, in, in one form or another, this was the question we heard during the 70s and 80s. And... Uh, uh, then it didn't well, it didn't take long from there for homosexuality to come into the uh, 
uh, to the crosshairs to the point where very quickly it reached the point that if you had any moral misgivings at all about uh, homosexuality, again, you were primitive, you were backwards, um, you were evil, you were bigoted. All of this is part of the sexual revolution. I submit to you, my dear friends, that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, this is a theory that is all wrong. That all the psychologists who said all you've got to do, do you remember the Surgeon General of the United States literally told Americans to get, well, how shall I put this, more in touch with themselves, right, under Clinton. She said that would be good and healthy, right, for, for you to um, engage in what the Bible refers to as onanism. Uh, that's good. And psychologists jumped, yes, that's good. Get rid of all these repressive ideas about sexuality. Psychiatrists, I remember cases of people who came to me who had literally had their lives damaged because psychiatrists gave them the wrong idea about sex. And uh, it just may be, just, just, just maybe, maybe this is another one of those examples where smart, intelligent, well-educated people are just plain wrong. That's all there is to it. They're just plain wrong. And that in reality, the sexual revolution has brought pain. It's brought agony. It's brought shattered lives. It's brought failed marriages or no marriages at all. Never in American history has such a small proportion of the population been married. And by the way, there are very significant demographic differences in that. In other words, it's not that all of America, one nation under God, <laughs> it hasn't been that for a long, long time. It's not that all of America as one nation is experiencing lower marriage stats than ever before. No, it's the so-called lower classes that have marriage has virtually vanished. And the so-called upper classes, oh, guess what? They're still marrying. And uh, what this does more than anything else is show the inextricable bond between marriage and economics. In other words, I've spoken about this before, very controversial, which, as you know, terrifies me. Uh, the fact is, if you really wanted to do something about poverty, stop thinking about race, stop thinking about the evils of capitalism, stop thinking about increasing welfare. You want to do something about poverty? Let's fix the marriage problem because there is no more reliable exodus from poverty than marriage. It's the, the numbers are absolutely incontrovertible. Here we're not talking theories. These are facts, and they are very, very, to coin Al Gore's phrase, these are very inconvenient facts for the left, very inconvenient indeed. But what is equally inconvenient is that we're running out of time on this segment. Quick break, the website rabbidaniellappin.com. Please head over there right now, order yourself a copy immediately of Madam, I'm Adam. Marriage Secrets from Eden. Whether you are Bible-centric or not, it doesn't make any difference. There is conversational material here for you to share with your kids, with your friends, with your spouse, with somebody you want to make your spouse, with somebody who uh, you are trying to, whatever it is. If you are a woman who wants to get closer to a man, if you are a man who wants to get closer to a woman, get this program, please. Do yourself a favor and do me a favor at the same time. Make both of us happy. And... Uh, 
just arrange to sit and listen to it in small slices. I'm not saying you listen to two hours at a time. Listen to it in small slices. Pause or stop the, the, the player and just talk about it. Just listen to it. Think about it and share ideas. Compare what each of you think with what I've just taught and what I've just explained. All righty, quick break. I'm going to be right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that's a position for which I humbly submit my candidacy. Rabbi Daniel Lappin reveals how the world really works. Male-female relationships right at the very heart of that. And maybe, just maybe, We've gone down the wrong path. Maybe you do not have to be apologetic about teaching your children traditional ideas of sex. Maybe those of us who feel that indeed a physical, intimate relationship between a man and a woman is best when that man and a woman are committed in a lifetime monogamous relationship with one another. Maybe we should stop whispering it. Maybe we should stop looking over our shoulders to see if anyone is getting ready to mock us or mug us for daring to come out against sex in that fashion. Just maybe. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I'm right. Maybe indeed the last 60 years have been a horrific mistake, one that history books of the future will scratch their heads about and say, how could the people of the second half of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st have really thought that whereas unrestrained, uninhibited sexuality has always been the province of the barbaric tribes, has always been the province of primitivism, how could the sophisticated people of the 20th and early 21st century have thought that abolishing the rules and rituals and restrictions of sex was somehow going to be a huge success? What were they thinking? Maybe that's exactly how it's going to come out. And yes, when friends for nine years showed us each one of the characters sleeping with one another at one time or another during that run, there were never arguments. Did you ever have you think seriously about the real world you know? Six single friends living in close proximity to one another, um, and they're all, they've all slept with one another at one time, or, and everything's fine. Everything's cool. Oh, they're still all good friends, and they're all happy, and everything's good. Really? Is that how the world really works, honestly? And, and so it is, whether it was Big Bang Theory or Seinfeld's or 30 Rock or whatever of the popular uh, uh, TV shows of the late 20th century. Or, or how about Hefner's death recently? Playboy founder Hugh Hefner, right? 
he was I mean, you read you read the obituaries about him, and you'd think that he was a civil rights hero. You'd think he was somebody who made America possible. Why? Because he was the first to openly publish pictures of naked women. Now, had this happened in the 30s, he'd have been demonized as a pervert. He'd have been run out of town. He probably would have been arrested. Because people would have said he's lowering the morals of the public. Yes, that is a legitimate argument. But uh, no, he was a hero. He was turned into a hero. And, um, and, and careers are made on this. And uh, all I ask you is, let me read to you uh, four statements, if I may. And you tell me how they would have felt about Playboy or how they would have felt about any episode of Friends, or how they would have felt about parents who send their daughters to a modern, successful, prestigious American university, only to have her debauched and turned into a man-hater because what was done to her. Do you think, how about this statement, our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That was John Adams, as you all know. How would he have felt about any of the things I've described? How about this statement? Religion and morality are the essential pillars of civil society. That was George Washington. Now, I, you know, it may be that it is possible to create a moral society without religion. Maybe. It's just that it's never been seen. We've never succeeded in doing it. And, you know, I have theories as to why that is, as I'm sure you do. Um, here's a nice one from dictionary founder and also uh, early American founder, uh, Noah Webster. The Christian religion in its purity is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. And I am persuaded that no civil government of a republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of that religion Christianity have not a controlling influence. Noah Webster. You know what? I couldn't have said it better myself. Whereas true religion and good morals are the only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness, it is hereby earnestly recommended to the several states to take the most effectual measures for the encouragement thereof. Does that sound like separation and church and state for you? This is the Continental Congress of 1778. True religion and good morals are the only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness. Okay, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that demonstrates the extent to which things have changed. In a good way? I don't think so. I think it's very hard to argue that it's in a good way. But the trouble is that nobody wants to be the Puritan. Nobody wants to be the party pooper. Nobody wants to get up and say, we've made a horrible mistake. Uh, the current theories on human sexuality being promoted in academia, in the educational establishment, are wrong. They've produced misery. Absolute, by the way, for a really uh, good read, if, you're, you know, if you read fiction, um, you will enjoy Tom Wolfe's book, uh, My Name is Charlotte Simmons. I think that's the name of it. I don't have it in front of me, but and I don't have it on my bookshelf right where I can see it. Uh, Tom Wolfe, it's a book of a few years ago. Uh, if you really want to experience what this has done to the lives of young women, 
please read Tom Wolfe, uh, his story, his uh, novel, My, My Name is Charlotte Simmons. Um, small town girl comes to a prestigious American university. Read, read in, and, and everybody who's gone through it acknowledges the accuracy and the excruciatingly painful detail of what he describes. Basically, her life gets ruined, right? Is this really such a good idea? Uh, as I said, marriage is virtually all but gone, all right, in the lower classes. And the penalty they pay is huge economic stress, huge. Uh, what is uh, the reason? Well, and by the way, it's been going down steadily. It dropped five points in England. In other words, 17% of people have never been married in England in 2012. Now, uh, five years later, it's over 20%, well over 20%. And so uh, what, you know, has that just been part of a steady up and down pattern of history? No, not at all. It's been on a steady downward decline since 1960, steadily downward and heading more in that direction. The, uh, the English underclass is exactly like the American underclass. And what makes it so valuable to study is that it rips away the masquerade of it being a problem of white racialism. Because whereas a disproportionate parts of America's black population is part of the underclass, uh, in England, the underclass is all white. Most of the black-skinned immigrants who've come to England are doing just fine. They're marrying, they're rising economically, but the native white-skinned English, it's a, it's a frightening underclass. So remember, folks, it's nothing to do with skin color, nothing to do with race. It's got everything to do with values, predominantly the value of marriage. Um, why are guys not marrying? Well, <laughs> look, um, for one thing, uh, you know, are men really, um, are they, um, are they being nice to men? And again, this is a huge generalization, right? A huge generalization. Um, no question about it. I'm, I acknowledge that it's a huge generalization and it's, you know, it's not pointing at, at you or at uh, anybody, at anybody else. No, not at all. Not talking about that. Um, but we're talking about, uh, in general, in general through society, uh, women are not um, are, are not nice to guys anymore. They they are now. Am I? Is this all about uh, women? No, of course not. I can talk also about uh, men devolving into uh, retarded adolescents and guys in their late twenties and early thirties who still behave like adolescents. Yeah. Um, absolutely, that's an enormous part of the problem. But another part of it is that uh, women are becoming or have become so indoctrinated by the feminist agenda and by the sexual agenda that um, th there's very little reason any longer for a man to be married. I'm not even speaking about the tremendous economic risks involved from speaking to men um, you know, I can tell you what some of the things are that, that women do, leaving aside for the moment that uh, the way the courts are biased and prejudiced at the moment, 
uh, a man in a divorce can be ruined in, 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 in so many ways. Financially, is, is right up there with them. Um, but, you know, what do guys feel? For, and I'm talking about married men now. Uh, their wives um, use hurtful words at them. They, they, they insult them with words. And women are, are much more verbally articulate than men are in typical, right, on, on average. And so uh, women are very good at brandishing words like weapons to embarrass and demean and, and to belittle their husbands. Guys don't like it. And instead of confronting the wife and saying, hey, we don't like it um, and you're going to have to stop this, Again, the nature, the natural nature of men is to just uh, uh, withdraw into glacial silence, to retreat from the relationship. And that just makes them even more unhappy and it frustrates their wives because there's no more communication. But it's, this is on the side of women. Yes, I repeat, I can make a list of, of what men do. I hear it from women as well. So a lot of this is obviously research for my new book. So uh, I'm just giving you a little bit of an advance heads up on the things I've, I've discovered and talking about real stuff. And you know I'm skeptical about so-called studies and I'm very skeptical of so-called experts. Uh, this is um, first-hand research. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really doing very little of outside uh, it's sort of pulling in so well the study of the University of Essex said this I'm reading that stuff but I'm taking it with a bit of a uh, not only a pinch of salt a bag of salt um, women very often um, shower their unrealistic expectations on their husbands and so what they're seeking from their husband is beyond what what Superman could provide could provide because uh, it isn't necessarily to be that one person does have to provide all these all these needs in your life um sarcasm by the way comes very high on the list critical being critical and facial expressions by the way like rolling the eyes to you know as if your husband is an, an unruly child um a lot of that stuff as well and then obviously the biggie is withholding affection and sex i, d I don't have to dwell on that but but by and large um, guys, uh, you know, I'll tell you when your wife cuts her hair short at a certain point in the marriage, be very careful, be very cautious because there is a statement there. Something is happening. Sorry, ladies, I know how much easier short hair is than long hair. I understand that you don't mean to say anything other than that. I'm so busy. I don't have time to spend uh, drying and setting long hair. I need a short. I understand all of that. But uh, amidst everything else that's going on, you won't deny that your husband's um, joy in your appearance is way down on your list at this point. Anyway, uh, there's a whole lot more on this, obviously, uh, but uh, there's a limit to how much time we're going to spend on it. We're at the end of today's show. Um, I'm if, if there's an enthusiastic response, if you like what I've been talking about and want to hear more, uh, tell me that because uh, then I can continue, if not next week, then the week after. But, uh, but otherwise, I tend to move on to other topics. But that's it for now. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, please go there, get hold of a copy, either by direct immediate download or by purchasing it to be sent to you in the mail of an audio program with study guide called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding the Secrets of Eden, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. 
uh, yeah, it's it's biblically based, and I strongly recommend that you listen to it together with your lover. You listen to it to the person that you would like to become your lover. You listen to it with somebody of the opposite gender with whom you would like to become close, and um, and you will find that the conversation at Spurs is exactly what the woman in the couple desires, and it will open up very interesting avenues of insight for the man as well. It's called Madam I'm Adam, Decoding the Secrets of Eden. You'll find it at rabbidaniellappin.com. That brings us to as far as we can go for right now. So until next week, my dear friends, my uh, passionate appreciation to each and every one of you for listening and being part of the show. For those of you who write in, uh, love that, appreciate that very much indeed as well. Wishing you all a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.